Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. If you were making a list of iconic female characters in the literary canon, you'd be remiss if you didn't save a spot for headstrong teenage sleuth Nancy Drew. With 56 books in the original series, 553 total in spin-offs and sub-series, as well as five movies, three television shows, and even a video game, spanning a few dozen ghostwriters from 1930 up through this year, she almost earns the distinction just by being prolific. But there's also something really compelling in an underdog way to me about books that aren't single smash hits and award winners but instead chug along massively long-running series with episodic adventures and templates that a little bit show through the design painted over top. It's probably wrong of me to call it underdog, but I think it feels like the distinction between films and TV shows. There's a bit less glamour and a bit more dogged determination on the small screen and in the serialized mystery novel. Maybe there are dips in quality, Maybe storylines repeat or fade out or feel less important when each installment resets to the status quo by the end, but come on, it's your characters, and there's always another volume. It's reliable. It's comfort food. However, one consequence is forgettability. Okay, I know I read Nancy Drew books. I know I read a lot of them. I even know I had the first three in a massive anthology volume that was literally too thick to fit inside my elementary school desk. I reread both the first book, The Secret of the Old Clock, and its follow-up, The Hidden Staircase, when deciding how I was going to talk about Nancy Drew. And I kept waiting and expecting and thinking, surely, something in here will strike a bell. But I got through both without being able to place even the few ultra-specific details I can recall. If you happen to know the Nancy Drew book where there's a cave that people drown in when the tide rises, or the one where she's following someone at night and the narration keeps using epithets to refer to her and the other person, like the detective and the Titian-haired girl. Because, side note, As a kid, I thought that was fascinating, in how you can sub out descriptors with key characteristics instead of repeating names. Not only for how it flows in the syntax, but also in wondering how you define yourself and how someone else would define you in a phrase that becomes like a personalized title. Which, I'd later learn, is seen a lot in ancient Greek and Roman epic poems. This is how you get Homer repeating rosy-fingered Dawn and Pallas Athena, or much-suffering Odysseus, man of many devices. Which, fun fact, is not only a result of these characters being iconic, as in icons filling archetypes, but also due to the structure of how epics like the Iliad and the Odyssey were performed in the oral tradition. Puzzle-piecing out different epithets to help get to the right number of syllables in a line, which would also happen on a larger scale with whole scenes, as poets would add in and skip over and lengthen battles and arguments, like verses of lyrics and refrains in a song that could go on as long as you wanted. Which is why epics seem so repetitive when you read printed versions, and we were talking about Nancy Drew, weren't we? Anyway, if you can place those fragments of phrases, let me know, because I don't have the patience to read 553 books when I'm not even sure which ones would be rereads. The comparison of Nancy Drew to mythic traditions is actually an appropriate one, because of how you can examine the consistency of her as a character, or really the lack thereof. 
Just like how the gods and heroes in Greek mythology have specific roles they fill, slotting into archetypes and expectations, Nancy also has a box that she sits in. She's the detective. She's warm-hearted and feisty and investigative. When you're reading a Nancy Drew book, you expect her to look for clues and find herself in danger and solve the mystery, and probably also drive around in her blue roadster. But that leaves a huge amount of flexibility for the character of Nancy to shift while still being recognizable as the same character across those 553 books and five movies. And it very much does, because not only is she being written by different authors, the series is continuing through decades, and the times change. You may notice that I'm so many minutes into this discussion, and I still haven't even started the plot synopsis. That's kind of because it doesn't matter. Like I said, these books are templated. Nancy meets nice people who need her help. Nancy is presented with a mystery. Nancy looks for clues. Nancy or someone else gets into danger. Nancy solves the mystery, mix, and repeat. There's also the habit, in several of the books, of giving away far too much in their title. In this first book, within the first chapter, we're told that an old man has died and there's a rumor about a missing will that redistributes his inheritance. The book is called The Secret of the Old Clock. I wonder where Nancy will end up finding the will. Could it possibly be inside the old clock that has a secret? In the second book, at an old mansion, items are being stolen and mysterious figures are appearing and disappearing around the house faster than seems possible, and the book is called The Hidden Staircase, so, you know, I wonder how that could possibly be happening. Where it's more interesting to look at specificities in the plot is the same place as to look for how the characterization of Nancy changes, and that is in the 1959 rewrites. Let me back up and give you some history. The series was conceived by the publisher Edward Stratemeyer as a counterpart to the Hardy Boys that would appeal to young girls, full of wish fulfillment and white, middle-class American ideals. Stratemeyer hired Mildred Wirt Benson, who ghostwrote 23 of the books in the original series, including the ones that I reread, and they were published under the collective pseudonym Carolyn Keene, starting in 1930. Wirt Benson is credited with creating Nancy's personality and fighting for her to be bold and headstrong, while publishers kept trying to convince her to soften Nancy's hard edges. When she moved on, Stratemeyer's daughter, Harriet Stratemeyer Wilson, who had been helping her father construct outlines for the ghostwriters to build on, wrote most of the rest of the series, and then in 1959, began working on revised versions of the earlier books. These 1959 rewrites are the editions that are most accessible now. They're the texts that were the most commercially successful and reached the broadest number of readers. When you get a Nancy Drew book from the library, you're reading the revision, which is exactly what I did. I'd seen a few notes about the type of edits the rewrites made, but didn't really think much of it, until I got my hands on an original copy of The Secret of the Old Clock, printed in 1930. Besides the stories being shortened for cost reasons, there are two significant areas of change. The simple one is that the 1930 originals were reflective of the time period in that they included overt racism and are littered with derogatory representations of non-white characters. For example, the only person of color in The Secret of the Old Clock 
is an African-American caretaker of the house with the aforementioned clock. He speaks in a phonetically written dialect and is portrayed as an irresponsible drunk who allows the house to be ransacked by thieves. The rewrites, to their credit, did set out to correct the racist stereotypes. However, they did so by scrubbing the non-white characters out entirely. In the revision, the caretaker becomes a kindly old white man who gets duped and beaten up by the thieves, and Nancy repeatedly reassures him that it's not his fault and goes out of her way to ensure he won't be blamed, as opposed to in the original where she admonishes the black caretaker for failing in his duties. The more complex changes are tied up in the characterization of Nancy, with repercussions on the structure of the novel and arrangement of scenes. This is what I found so entertaining in researching the legacy of Nancy Drew, because discussions draw on these 1959 rewrites. Like I said, they're what are commercially available and have superseded the originals as primary sources. She is so often cited from the rewrites as this headstrong, feisty girl who's independent and self-empowered, which is hilarious because 1959 Nancy is a placating pansy compared with 1930 Nancy. To give you a few more plot details for context, the inciting incident, like I mentioned before, is the passing of an old man, Josiah Crowley. Currently, his will leaves his inheritance to the relatives with whom he lived for a couple years, a family called the Tophams who are, put it mildly, not nice people. They have a couple daughters Nancy's age with whom she does not get along. They're unpleasant and snobbish and act superior without any good reason to be. This is all in contrast, both to Nancy, who, despite being affluent, isn't pompous, and to a host of other people Nancy meets across the course of the book. All poor family friends or neighbors who were kind to Mr. Crowley and whom he said he would take care of once he was gone. Nothing is morally complex here. The rich, rude people don't deserve the money, the poor, nice people do, Nancy makes it happen, with the help of her lawyer father, by tracking down a secret will Mr. Crowley wrote and hid before his death. But the differences between the two versions is stark, especially if you read them back to back, like I did. Nancy, in the original, is almost spiteful in chasing what she believes to be the right thing. She is open about her distaste for the Tophams, as opposed to dancing politely around the topic in the rewrite. She is much more demanding and bullish, and none of this I'm saying is an insult, although it probably would be in 1930. It goes down to the little actions. Here's a quote. With characteristic impetuosity, she darted from the room, permitting the office door to bang behind her. And at the end of the book, when the updated will is being read, she takes an almost vindictive glee in the misfortune of the Tophams who are also revealed to be much less well-off than they pretend and desperate for the inheritance, which is then snatched away from them. When we turn to the rewrites, that same scene focuses almost purely on the altruism of the deserving friends who are now getting the money, with more pity than disdain directed toward the Tophams. Nancy is much more polite and well-mannered and less willing to push the edges of the law. After the house is looted and Nancy tracks down the thieves, in both editions, she steals back the titular clock, but when a police officer asks for a ride back to the station when the clock is in her car, 1959 Nancy immediately fesses up, whereas 1930 Nancy blatantly hides stolen evidence. Everyone is nicer across the board in the rewrite. The Tophams are toned down, and a pair of sisters whom Nancy meets who were friends with Mr. Crowley 
in the original are blunt and realistic about the hardships of their poverty, while in the rewrite, all scenes with them focus around one sister being a naturally gifted singer who is oh so deserving of music lessons. Scenes are rearranged to accommodate all these shifts in focus, and whenever there's an odd moment where the action stalls out so Nancy can play badminton with a child or have a birthday party with her new friends, there's a high probability that was added in the rewrite, all in the service of softening Nancy. She still has her determination, she still is sharp-witted, but the writing is unavoidably stilted in the revision. The veneer of classism has thickened, and the improper edges of Nancy's personality have been filed down. The appeal of Nancy Drew, across all versions, is the way in which she has it all. The books are wish fulfillment for the bold adventures of mysteries. But Nancy manages to chase that freedom while still embodying the feminine ideals of the time period. In a book titled The Girl Sleuth, writer and feminist literary critic Bobby Ann Mason described how the Nancy Drew stories, quote, seem to satisfy two standards, adventure and domesticity. But adventure is the superstructure, domesticity the bedrock. Nancy chases down thieves, but also manages her household after the early death of her mother. She doesn't work outside the home, but she has her own car and is free to go wherever she wants. Wirt Benson's writing is especially aware of the proper societal norms Nancy is exceeding, and she addresses it early and often. The narration has Mr. Drew describing Nancy's curly golden bob as not at all the kind of head which one expected to indulge in serious thoughts. Later on, he and Nancy have the following conversation. Detective work isn't always the safest occupation in which to engage. I'm not afraid of them, father. Good, Mr. Drew exclaimed. I was hoping you would say that. I'm glad you have the courage of your convictions, but I didn't want you to march off into battle without a knowledge of what undoubtedly you will be up against. It's like it's saying, okay, we know you're expecting this overprotective father who wants Nancy to stay home and stay safe. We know you may be this overprotective father concerned at Nancy's adventures, but none of that is allowed in this story. Mr. Drew is not going to stop Nancy, and neither can you. Nancy Drew is an excellent example to talk about characters presented in contradiction. I discussed this idea briefly in the previous episode of this podcast on The Right Three, that the important questions in literature, the most germane themes in a book, are indicated by the areas that are unclear and contradictory, that don't give a direct and obvious thesis or moral. One of the takeaways, you could say, from Secret of the Old Clock is, if you're kind, you deserve good things, if you're rude, you don't. Great. Excellent. No one's disputing that. It's consistent and a little hitting the reader over the head. But on the other end of the simplicity spectrum, we've got the character of Nancy Drew herself. Let's talk about Paradise Lost. I've hit a few other epic poems today, let's go full in. So Paradise Lost is a 17th century epic by John Milton about the fall of man. It's biblical fan fiction, chronicling the temptation of Adam and Eve by Satan and their banishment from the paradisiacal Garden of Eden. What we care about here is how Milton treats the character of Eve. 
The thousand-foot view of the historical context is that Milton is writing during the English Restoration in opposition to encroaching tyrannical monarchy. The theology of Paradise Lost is dependent upon democratization and equality. Humans have to have free will or else they can't willingly fall and get your divine right of kings out of my face at the same time. Which is all perfectly well and fine for Milton until he crashes headlong into the question of gender. To make sense with his message, Milton wants his character of Eve to be free and equal with Adam, but he's writing in the 17th century, which keeps undercutting his high-minded democratic ideals and limiting the extent to which he would grant liberty and therefore power to women. So if you're reading Paradise Lost and parsing through all the metaphors and literary implications that surround Eve, it's a nightmare. It's a mess. You can go practically line by line and see Milton contradicting himself in how much Eve has free will, how is her relationship to God allowed and defined, and how much does she need to be controlled and made subservient versus how much does she deserve equal standing with Adam. If you're sitting down to write an essay arguing what Milton believes about gender equality, you either have to cherry-pick quotes and ignore significant passages on either side, or admit that Milton didn't know what he believed either. Can you tell I have tried to write essays about this? There's a strikingly similar thing going on with Nancy Drew in this struggle between how much power and independence to give her and the need for her to still fit the perfect gender roles of the time period. You won't hear Nancy Drew say that she's not like other girls. So she knows how to fix a boat engine and changes her own tire, but she also goes evening dress shopping and gets excited about society parties. She doesn't have to work because she's rich, but she could work because sometimes she does errands for her dad's law practice. Literary critic Deborah Siegel said that, quote, Nancy Drew solved the contradiction of competing discourses about American womanhood by entertaining all of them. In looking back and forth between the original and rewritten books, it also becomes evident how these simultaneously allowed contradictions are expounded in the 1959 versions. Because the text is literally contradicting itself by being written by at least two different people. The acerbic, impetuous Nancy invented by Wirt Benson shares the page with the charitable, refined Nancy edited by Stratemeyer Wilson. Nancy Drew has always claimed both sides of the adventure-domesticity debate. It is the nature of the character, to the point where it could be one of her epithets. But the revision of these novels, which were then taken up as the literary canon by scholars and young readers alike, cast into sharp relief the fact that Nancy is, quote, a paradox, which may be why feminists can laud her as a formative girl power icon, and conservatives can love her well-scrubbed middle-class values, end quote. We recognize in Nancy the ideals we prioritize, even if a real girl in 1930 or even 1959 would find it difficult or prohibitively improper to embody all of the qualities that Nancy represents. So, what do we do with a character who is the same character, but not always characterized the same way? We notice it. We pay attention to the differences and try to recognize why they're present. I've had a few fights about wanting to pass off a piece of media as a product of its time. 
I don't have a lot of regard for that argument. Because most of the time, it's a code phrase for excusing problematic elements and opinions and wanting everybody to just sit down and shut up and be okay with representations of racism, misogyny, sexual assault played as humor, erasure of minority groups, and everything else. But I also think the alternative to this isn't burning every book and movie that ever had a stereotype or off-color joke. It's seeking to understand each piece of media in its context, and acknowledging the influences that shape the story, the conflict, and the characters. Thanks for listening. The music is by David Hillowitz. The book is by pen name Carolyn Keene. The opinions are by me. For the next episode, I'll be rereading The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.